down and pick up your Bibles. Turn to John 7. John 7, verses 25 to 39. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is this not the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him who and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going back to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to, said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go into the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those had believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Son of the reading of the Lord's word. Let's pray together. O God, all-sufficient, you have made and uphold all things by the word of your power. Darkness is your pavilion. You walk on the wings of the wind. All nations are as nothing before you. One generation succeeds another, and we hasten back to the dust. The heavens we behold will vanish away like the clouds that cover them. The earth we tread on will dissolve as a morning green. But you, unchangeable and incorruptible, are forever and ever God over all, blessed eternally. Infinitely great and glorious you are. We are your offspring and your care. Your hands have made and fashioned us. You have watched over us with more than parental love, more than maternal tenderness. You have held our souls in life and have not suffered our feet to be moved. Your divine power has given us all things necessary for life and godliness. Let us bless you at all times and forget not how you have forgiven our iniquities, healed our diseases, redeemed our lives from destruction, crowned us with loving kindness and tender mercies, satisfied our mouths with good things, renewed our youth like the eagles. May your holy scriptures govern every part of our lives and regulate the discharge of all our duties so that we may adorn your doctrine in all things. We pray that you would bless the preaching of your word unto these holy ends. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we pick up again where we left off in John. You may remember Jesus has gone now to the uh, Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem and has been teaching people in the temple. Uh, throughout this section of John, we've been seeing hostility gradually growing. 
Uh, with each encounter Jesus has with the Jews, the rulers of the Jews, we see more and more anger. As we saw last week, those who are seeking to kill Jesus had really missed what the law was about. They did not know God, and therefore they did not recognize God incarnate, God the Son in the flesh. Jesus was now teaching people openly in Jerusalem, and this raised a question in the minds of some, and that brings us to verse 25. Let's read together. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? So we have a new thought here occurring to the crowd, right? The people knew that the authorities were seeking to kill Jesus. Remember, verse 13 had told us that Jesus was the talk of the town prior to his arrival in Jerusalem. But for fear of the Jews, no one was speaking openly. Right? These conversations were taking place in hushed tones. You can picture people looking around, making sure the wrong person wouldn't overhear them. But now Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem, and here he is. Right? He's not hiding, but standing up and teaching the people publicly. The crowd begins to wonder, isn't this the man that they're after? Why is no one saying anything to him? Right? Here he is teaching in public. Why haven't they arrested him? Could it be that perhaps the authorities have come to know that he is the Christ? That he is the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for. Is, is that why they're leaving him alone? Uh, no sooner has this thought occurred to them than a counterpoint quickly follows. Uh, verse 27 says, But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Now once again, the way that Jesus has been doing things does not fit with the pre-existing notions held by the people about what the Messiah would do and be. Right? We know where this man comes from. When the Messiah appears, no one will know where he comes from. Now, this likely did not mean that they thought they would have no idea as to where the Messiah would be born, as we'll see later in this chapter, verses 40 and 41, a discussion about the birthplace of the Messiah. Um, but rather, they held the view, as Kay Carson puts it, that while the Messiah would be born of flesh and blood, he would be wholly unknown until he appeared to effect Israel's redemption. Right, so they seem to be, have been expecting a Messiah who would burst onto the scene and immediately fulfill their messianic expectations, likely uh, deliverance from Rome. Um, and so this Jesus of Nazareth has left some questions about his identity as Messiah that they did not think would be there when the Messiah appeared. Right? This is Jesus. We've known him for a long time. Remember previously, we know his mom and dad. We know where he's from. We know his brothers and his sisters. We know where this man comes from. This, therefore, doesn't fit our ideas of how the Messiah would come onto the scene. Right? They thought when the Messiah appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus answers and says, Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, Yes, you know me, and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. 
He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So Jesus answers the murmurings of the crowd, and he points out that they don't know quite as much about where he's really from as they thought they did. They are dismissing him as a possible Messiah on the grounds that they know him and know where he's from. Now, we have the privileged position as the readers of John's Gospel uh, to know where Jesus really came from. John's prologue, the introduction to this Gospel, took us back. Back before the birth of Christ. Back even before the Romans conquered Jerusalem. Back before the promise of a Messiah was ever given. Back before the world was created. John 1, 1. In the beginning. Now, in the beginning, what? I mean, no, Genesis starts this way. It says there, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And as we saw when we worked through the prologue, John deliberately picks up on this language uh, in Genesis and then modifies it in order to give us more information. Right? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. So notice the great irony in this situation. The crowds think that they know all that they need to know about Jesus and where he's from. And the fact that they think they know where he's from is the reason for why they don't believe he's the Messiah. If they only knew where he was really from. Jesus answers, you know me and know where I am from. Carson notes this could be either read as an affirmation, acknowledging that there is some soundness in their argument, right? Yes, they do know where he grew up, um, but as the next words show, they don't quite know enough. Or this could be read as a question, right? Jesus saying, you know me and where I am from, do you? Now, either way, Jesus points out that their knowledge was lacking, he says, I did not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. Now that is a common way in this gospel for Jesus to refer to God the Father. He who sent me. Now sent him from where? Not just from Nazareth not just from Galilee. Readers of this gospel know more than that. He was sent down from heaven. Jesus said, I came from him. God the Son was sent by God the Father. He therefore did not have a beginning. Right? He did not begin to exist like you and I did. Right? He did not come into existence, but rather we see God the Son has eternally existed. God the Son has eternally been with the Father. Uh, he, the one through whom 
and for whom all things were made, then entered into his own creation. You think you know me and where I'm from? Well, let me tell you. You think you know everything you need to know about me? There is more for you to learn. And if they would learn the reality of who Christ is, this would change everything. And I'm afraid that even many self-professed Christians could fall into this category. We know Jesus. At least we know what we need to know, right? We know the gist of the gospel, that Christ died on the cross for our sins, that he rose again from the dead, and now anyone who believes in him receives eternal life. That's all we really need to know, isn't it? Woody Bauckham put it well when he said, The modern church is producing passionate people filled with empty heads who claim to love the Jesus they don't know very well. Dear congregation, do not be content with the basics. Do not remain babes in Christ. We must not remain spiritual infants content with a diet of spiritual milk instead of meat. Colossians 1 verse 28, Paul speaks of the aim of his ministry. He says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. See, we are all to strive for maturity in Christ. We are to seek to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, 2 Peter 3.18. And truly, growing to know Christ changes everything. The true depth of the riches of knowing Christ is unfathomable. There is so much depth to who Christ is, such glory in what he has done and what he is still doing for us. I remember a dream I had one time uh, about a new book of the Bible. I was very excited in my dream as there was something new, something undiscovered by me, something that God had revealed with the intention of impacting my life, and somehow I just never come across it before. Um, and I then woke up uh, a little bit disappointed that there wasn't actually another book of the Bible I had never discovered. But upon reflection, I realized that there may as well be, right? For are there not vast swaths of Scripture that I don't know very well, that we don't know very well? Are there not doctrines and teachings and promises and principles revealed by our Father that we have not yet learned and applied to our lives? Are there not depths of glory in knowing Christ that we have not yet sought to plumb? If you have only a basic knowledge of Christ, do not be content to stay there. Do not assume, like this crowd, that you know all that you need to know. Like an untapped gold mine, there are riches here to be had. There are blessings awaiting you. Encouragements, comforts, 
promises and realities that will add steel to your spine, fire to your soul, and vigor and zeal to your walk with the Lord. So my brothers and sisters, do not dismissively assume that you already know all that you need to know. But seek maturity in Christ. Spend time in the Word. Learn doctrine. Read good books. Come to our midweek events. Come to Sunday school. Ask questions. Connect with your pastors. In all things, seek to be growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's continue on. Verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? So we see a bit of a mixed response here from the crowd. Uh, some people are placing some kind of belief in him, being impressed by the signs he has done. Uh, while others, likely again referring to the leaders of the Jews, <clears throat> were still seeking to arrest him. But notice John says, No one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. There would come a time, fairly soon from this point in the story, when Jesus would be arrested, brought on trial, condemned, scourged, and crucified. But that hour was not yet. No one could lay a hand on him until God's appointed time. Now we're not told how God prevented them from arresting him, only that they did not do so because his time had not yet come. We see other examples of this in the Gospels. Luke 4, verse 30, on one occasion, uh, the crowd became so enraged with Jesus that it says, they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him up to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Let's try to picture the confusion that would have followed as they're all trying to find where this guy went. Right. His time had not yet come. On that occasion, he simply walked through the angry crowd that was seeking to murder him. Uh, we're not told how it was that God stopped him from being arrested, but we do see that God was directing these events. God had a particular purpose and a particular timeline in mind. Nothing occurs outside the sovereign providence of God. And this is no less true today. Scripture describes God as the one who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Ephesians 1.11 He is described as the one who declared the end from the beginning. From ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Isaiah 46.9.10 He is sovereign over all things, such that nothing happens to us outside of his sovereign will and timing. Take courage in this, my brothers. 
There are no maverick molecules in the universe, but all are subject to God. As Spurgeon said, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit as well as the sun in the heavens. That the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered as the stars in their courses. The creeping of an aphid over the rosebud is as much fixed as the march of the devastating pestilence. The fall of sear leaves from a poplar is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. Close quote. So notice nothing and no one could touch a hair on Christ's head outside of the sovereign purposes of God. No one laid a hand on him, for his hour had not yet come. What are we to draw from this? It is the sovereign, meticulous providence of God to which Christ points as a source of comfort for his people. Jesus says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Matthew 10, 29, 31. Fear not the God who is sovereign even over the affairs of sparrows has a running tally on the number of hairs on your head. He therefore knows the comings and goings of all parasites, cancers, and pestilences. So we are to take comfort in this. Nothing happens to you apart from his sovereign will. And if you are in Christ, then you can know that it is all ultimately serving your good. Right? Even if we never see that in this lifetime, we can never understand how these things are working together for good. Scripture says, all things work to good, together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So be of good courage. The Lord your God is with you. He is sovereign. Continue on, verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the mutterings of the crowd, these discussions as to whether or not this might be the Messiah, uh, even likely the theory that perhaps the leaders might have acknowledged Jesus to be Messiah, and that's why they had not arrested him. This news, these mutterings, reached the Pharisees and served as the signal to them that it was now time to issue the arrest warrant. Now, in response, right as this is happening, Jesus predicts his death. He says, in just a short time, he would return to the one who sent him. After his death, he would be beyond the reach of all. As he says, you will seek me, but you will not find me. Where I am going, you cannot come. Notice, for Jesus, 
death was not the end, but simply a return to the one who sent him. And Jesus would return, he would rise again, and even then he would return again to the Father. And here is the hope of all who are in Christ. This is how we too must view death. Just as Christ said that he would go to him who sent him, for us too, we are simply going to the one who made us. When our hour comes, when our sovereign God calls us, know for those who are in Christ, death is not the end. But instead we go to be with him. Death for the Christian is a gateway. The sting of death has been removed. It was taken by Christ. And so it is now the gateway to heaven. We will be with the Lord. We will be made perfect in holiness. We will be forever beyond the reach of pain, sickness, and mortality. We will enter into the joy of our Master, having full and unbroken fellowship with the God whom we had already been growing to love with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. When we have completed the work our Lord has assigned us to do, he calls us home. Verse 35. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion? among the Greeks, and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me, but you will not find me, and where I am going, you cannot come? The Jews, who do not have the benefit we do of knowing the whole story, did not understand what Jesus meant. They were wondering, quite literally, where on earth might Jesus go that they would not be able to follow? Right? Where did this man think he could go? where we wouldn't find him. Would he go maybe beyond the borders of the Holy Land? Would he teach Greeks, perhaps meaning Gentiles or Jew Gentile converts to Judaism? Now the irony in this question is that the Jews spoke better than they knew. As Jesus will say later, when he is lifted up, he will draw all peoples to himself. That is, the gospel would not stay with the Jews. Christ came not only to be the Jewish Messiah, but to be the Savior of the world. Christ has purchased a people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. And so not only Jewish proselytes, the Gentile converts to Judaism, but truly, the Greeks too, all Gentiles, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, would be called. And so here we are, Nearly 2,000 years later, on the opposite side of the globe, a room, I'm guessing, full of mostly Gentiles who have been drawn and granted salvation by Christ. Right? The message has gone, and the Gentiles have been taught. The Jews spoke better than they knew. Verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. 
Now, just to remember the setting, we are still here in Jerusalem at the Feast of Tabernacles. And here, following a break from this last section, we see Jesus stands and cries out loudly on the last day of the feast, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, there's a lot going on in this statement from Christ, and it is made all the richer if we will understand the setting. So the Feast of Tabernacles at the time of Christ included a water-pouring ritual. Now, that was not something that God had instructed, but something that had been uh, happening for several hundred years before the time of Christ. Um, And that is, on the seven days of the feast, the high priest would fill a golden pitcher with water from the pool of Siloam, and it was then carried in joyful procession back to the temple. Now, as the procession came to the temple, they were greeted by three blasts from the trumpet, uh, this joyful occasion, these trumpet blasts. Then while the pilgrims watched, the priests would process around the altar with the pitcher, while the temple choir was singing Psalms 113 to 118. And when the choir reached Psalm 118, every male pilgrim shook what was called a lulav, which was willow and myrtle twigs tied with a palm in his right hand, while his left hand raised a piece of citrus fruit, which was a sign of the ingathered harvest. And then all cried together, Give thanks to the Lord! Give thanks to the Lord! Give thanks to the Lord! And then the water was poured out on the altar. Now, before we move into the meanings of these ceremonies, I just want to linger for a moment and consider the effect that this would have had on the children present, particularly the young men and boys. You can just picture to travel with your father to Jerusalem for a commanded feast of the Lord, to have a role to play, right, following with the people of God, to then participate, shouting your thanks to the Lord, for the young men to see their fathers and all the men of their faith communities participating in this way would powerfully instill in them that this is what godly masculinity looks like. Devotion and service to our maker and redeemer. God's past acts of deliverance being retold, reenacted before you, again, as they're living in tents, remembering the sojournings of Israel. All of this would have a powerful impact upon the next generation. And when we consider what God has ordained for worship in the New Covenant, we see many of these same principles at work. Worship in the New Covenant, contrary to much of how it is approached these days, worship in the New Covenant is corporate in nature. That means it's something we all are to do together. Each one of us has a role to play. Coming to church is not a passive thing. You now, even while listening to the sermon, you are not consumers. You are worshipers. You are participants. You are participating in what God has ordained. God has commanded for preachers to preach, and it would do no good for them to preach to empty rooms. Amen? So if there's a command for preachers to preach, there is a corresponding duty for the people to hear. 
And this is, too, an act of worship. Right? You are not consumers, you are participants. In our prayers, though there is only one man praying from the front, we are corporately lifting our hearts up to God, lending agreement to what is said. I would encourage you all, if you agree with what is said, to give a hearty amen at the end of the prayer. When we sing, once again, you are not here for a performance. You are not consumers being entertained. You are worshipers participating in the corporate worship of the triune God who has commanded his people to sing, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Ephesians 5, 19. I would submit to you, you cannot address one another with your mouth closed. <clears throat> and of course, we too retell the greatest act of deliverance that has ever been accomplished, and we retell this every week through the Lord's Supper, in which we commemorate the sacrifice of Christ, his body broken for us, and his blood of the new covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And in all of these things, we too have our sons standing beside their fathers, looking up and seeing what godly, masculine piety looks like. Enthusiastic worship of our God, our sovereign maker and redeemer. We have our daughters here looking at their mothers, seeing godly women joining their voices to the men's, joyfully participating and rendering acceptable offerings unto the Lord. And all of this we do weekly, right? As the pilgrims were required three times annually to go up to Jerusalem, we have been appointed a weekly time of worship. God's appointed day of rest and worship, sanctified by Christ's resurrection and completion of work, and affectionately referred to as the Lord's Day. All of this done rightly, done biblically, will be a powerful and essential part of passing on the faith to our children. Now back to the Feast of Tabernacles. So this joyful procession and water-pouring ritual, uh, D.A. Carson notes that these ceremonies at the Feast of Tabernacles were related, uh, in Jewish thought, both to the Lord's provision of water in the desert and to the Lord's pouring out of the Spirit in the last days. So this is what was going on in their minds as they did this. Uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, you may remember, commemorated the time that Israel had to dwell in tents. Right? God brought them out of Egypt. Remember back to our Exodus series? God brought them out of Egypt and they were in the wilderness and they did not have a home immediately. And so for their wilderness wanderings, they dwelt in booths, in tabernacles, in tents. While in the desert, God provided them water from a rock for the people to drink. And this is what is in their minds as they're doing this water-pouring ritual. And secondly, what he mentioned here, the promise of God's outpouring of the Spirit in the last days. Right? There is a prophecy from Joel 2, verse 28, where God prophesied, It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Now there's more. This feast was associated as well with adequate rainfall. And we have several water-themed Old Testament texts 
which may have been associated with the festival in the minds of the Jews. Most prominently, Isaiah 12, 3-5, which says, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Right, so this is the setting. This is where Jesus is when he makes this proclamation. The great day of the feast, likely the last day that they would do this water ritual. Uh, likely at the time of this joyful procession, praise and thanksgiving uh, to God for his provision of water and his promise of the Spirit. And then Jesus stands up and shouts and calls out in a loud voice, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You just try to picture for a second how dramatic this scene would have been. Right? In the midst of these festivities, all this stuff that's happening, these crowds, Jesus then stands up and says, I am the fulfillment of this. Right? I am the fulfillment. I fulfill what was anticipated by this feast and these rituals. Christ is the fountain of living water. He is the well of salvation from which all may draw. Salvation is found in him. If Isaiah could invite the thirsty to drink from the waters, Jesus announces that he is the one who can provide the waters. Let all who are thirsty come to Christ. Let all who seek life find it in Christ. Spiritual life, like the presence of the Spirit in us, here and now. Eternal life, and ultimately resurrection life. All are found in Christ. Whoever believes in me, as the, Spirit, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John explains, Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believe in him were to receive. For as of yet, the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So all who believe in Christ, he says, will have rivers of living water flowing out of their hearts. And John says, this is about the Spirit. Now after Jesus died and rose again, he ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he kept this promise. To close this morning, you can turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. So this happens now 50 days after the Passover, when Jesus died and rose again. Jesus has ascended into heaven, and now all of his disciples are in Jerusalem for the festival of Pentecost. When there is suddenly a sound from heaven like a mighty rushing wind, and tongues of fire descended and rested on the believers, it says there in Acts 2, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit 
and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Right, so the people are astonished, they're astounded at this, because regardless of where they were from, everyone heard the disciples speaking in their own language. And there's this miracle taking place. And so the people are asking, you know, what does all of this mean? Right, what's happening here? Uh, they had their own theory as to what might have been happening here. Uh, but Peter stands up and addresses the crowd and declares, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And he quotes from this text we read earlier. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. So notice Peter says that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost was the fulfillment of what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Peter goes on, beautiful sermon, read that in Acts 2. Uh, but Peter summarizes the, the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Christ. And then he says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So just as John had said, the Spirit was going to come, but had not yet been given, because Jesus had not been glorified. Now here, the outpouring of the Spirit, Peter says, is because he has been exalted to the right hand of the Father. When Jesus was glorified, when he ascended to God's right hand and received the promised kingdom, he kept the promise he had made. And he poured out the gift of the Holy Spirit on his church. And so in that early period, you read through Acts, there were visions, prophecies, and other miracles to mark the fulfillment of what was prophesied by Joel. And from that point on, the church, all true followers of Christ, have had access to the gift of the Spirit in a unique way. We are the dwelling place of God on earth, whose spirit dwells in us. So to summarize this section here, there's a lot going on, but we see at the Feast of Tabernacles, during a water-pouring ritual, commemorating God's past acts of salvation and anticipating a future outpouring of the Spirit, Jesus declares that he is the true source of living water, and that he would grant the Holy Spirit to all who believe in him. And the outpouring of the Spirit, John tells us, what happened after Christ was glorified. And so then at Pentecost, in the confusion following the outpouring of the Spirit, Peter declares that this is the fulfillment of Joel 2, 28-33. Christ Jesus had received the promised kingdom of his father David, and being exalted and having received the promises given him, he then poured out the Spirit, which they were witnessing. And it is by the power of that same Holy Spirit who has been with Christ's church that we are here today. Believing in the same Christ and proclaiming the same gospel. If anyone thirsts, 
Let him come to Christ and drink. He offers the water of life without charge. You who do not know Christ, are you not thirsty? Come and draw from the wells of salvation. Come, turn from your sin, repent and believe in Christ Jesus, and you will be saved. Then join in the celebration of the redeemed. To my brothers and sisters, let us live in joy. Christ has kept his promise. We who are in Christ have the Holy Spirit. So let us walk by the Spirit. Let us live according to the desires of the Spirit and so not gratify the desires of the flesh. Let us live in hope and peace and joy as we serve our sovereign, omnipotent God and continue to plumb the depths of the glories of knowing our Savior. Amen.